believing in scarcity makes you sick. I want and you got, so I'm going to do something violent to take it. That's where all of this kind of sickness and violent thinking, in my opinion, comes from. But the truth is there is enough. It, it's a sickness to, it is a sickness to live in my country right now and say, we can't save the postal service or we can't pay people while they can't work. Trump will one day be gone. And then how do we all still live together? I feel like we're in the place that we're in because people did not want to share this land. There's enough for everybody. This is where we go wrong. You're listening to episode 115 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. Hello, I am Simon Jones. And my name is Steph McKenna. And it is the 24th of September here in Norwich as we're recording. And just this week, the government announced a new load of lockdown measures, which is forcing everyone to do things slightly differently yet again. And I think we're aware that it's been a really hard time throughout 2020, in fact, for for everyone. But for creative people and writers, it's been especially difficult to focus and concentrate on something. I think right at the start of lockdown, everyone was like, oh, you'll finally have time to finish your novel because you'll be at home all the time. Uh, and that's not how brains work. Doesn't doesn't <laughs> quite work like that, does it? Not really, no. So I thought it would be good if we just mentioned a few resources we have at the National Centre for Writing that might be of assistance to anyone who is struggling a little bit. First off, we have lots of online courses including a completely free one from Ben Johncock, which is all about supercharging your productivity. And although this was designed prior to lockdown and prior to COVID-19 becoming a thing, a lot of the exercises and suggestions that Ben put into that course are just as valid and really useful if you're kind of struggling to get your focus back. What else, Steph? Well, I mean, there's a whole whole raft of podcast episodes for you to go back and listen to from us. 114 in fact. But one episode that we picked out, which was recorded back in June, was with our friend Lewis Buxton, who is a poet and a performer and a producer and a tutor. And he he's the founder and director of Toast, which is a, a regular live poetry kind of open mic night that takes place in Norwich usually. So Lewis came onto the podcast and we were talking with him about his route into poetry, how he set up Toast and how that works, and also how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected his work and how he's managed to stay productive and proactive and positive and creative during this difficult time. So that was episode 98 and it was called Poetry in Lockdown with Lewis Buxton. Uh, Lewis is a very, very chirpy chap anyway, so I would recommend listening to him talk whenever you're feeling a little bit a little bit down or maybe feeling like you're lacking in motivation. Whenever I speak to Lewis, it just makes me feel a lot more energised and a lot happier. We also have our wonderful conversation between Jenny Offal and Joe Dunthorne, uh, which covers all sorts of things around COVID-19 because we recorded it right back at the start. This came out on the 20th of March, so everything was very fresh and no one really knew what was going on. And in fact, Jenny was supposed to be in Norwich at Dragon Hall doing a live event in front of an audience, but she ended up stuck in the US, unable to travel and do her, her new book tour. So it was the first event we did where we set it up online and put it out as a podcast so that it could still happen in digital form and and Jenny has all sorts of interesting things to say about catastrophizing and how to handle difficult world events. So yeah, very much worth listening to. I would follow Jenny Offal's advice anytime. I really would. 
We've also got a very aptly named episode, Finding Your New Normal with Mark Stay. We've had Mark Stay on the podcast before. This was his second time chatting to us. And Mark is a writer and presenter, the co-creator of The Bestseller Experiment and author of Robot Overlords and The End of Magic. And he came to discuss his publishing experiments and why finding a new normal is something we do multiple times in our lives. So if you're struggling to be productive while under isolation, you're sat at home over the coming weeks and months, it's a great episode that we highly recommend you listen to. Yeah, and not to reduce the the scale of what we've all had to go through this year, but mm-hmm. I think what was reassuring about Mark is that he did point out that we are always adjusting to a new normal in some capacity and that we are capable of doing it. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a really healthy thing to keep in mind, actually, isn't it? That um, we're, we're very we're very good at adapting, not just this year, but we're always adapting to new situations and new challenges. So uh, we can all make it. We can all get through it. Yeah, doesn't always feel like it, but if you stick at it, then you'll get there eventually, which is a bit like writing generally. <laughs> exactly. So, Steph, what are you reading at the moment? I'm aware that's not something I've asked you for a long time. I was going to say, it's been a while, hasn't it? So at the moment, I am reading the latest book from Evie Wilde, who is someone that we've worked with in the past. She's fantastic. And her new book, The Base Rock, came out, I think, in hardback earlier in the year, in March. And this is a this is, this is is something that I wanted to read as soon as I read the blurb. So this is a kind of modern gothic set across three timelines that kind of intertwine and meet up together. So we've got a story that's set in the early 1700s. We've got a story that's set in the aftermath of the Second World War. And we've got a story set in kind of modern day. So there's three three narratives running across three women, all in a very similar location. And there's this, this image of the base rock, which has for centuries watched over the lives of all of these women on the Scottish mainland. So that's the kind of geography and the location that ties them all together so I'm only about 100 pages in at the moment but I'm loving it it's beautifully written so uh, I would highly recommend that to anyone who loves a kind of modern gothic quite a haunting very well crafted novel sounds very you it is isn't it Pete McKenna how about you (laughs) Uh, well I'm reading a graphic novel at the moment called Wasteland which uh, it's been around for a while. I think the whole thing is is wrapped up and you can get it in trade paperbacks now. It's by a writer called Anthony Johnston. And we actually have Anthony coming on the show pretty soon uh, to talk about a completely different book that he's just written called The Organised Writer, which oh, is super useful. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that episode coming out because I think it's full of stuff that will be extremely handy to pretty much anybody. But I'm also now going through Anthony's back catalogue to check out some of his stuff. And Wasteland is this post-apocalyptic, very mysterious scenario, which at the moment I don't know what's going on, but it's Mm. really intriguing and it's got this amazing black and white art all the way through it. And yeah, um, don't know where it's going to go, but so far I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Sounds very intriguing. So one more thing before we get on with today's episode, which is just to mention that we have another early career writers resource pack on the way. So these are our packs which are made possible thanks to funding from the Arts Council and they accompany our early career awards, which include the Desmond Elliott Prize. So we put out a few of these packs already covering things like character, plot, method, and the next one is coming out in the next couple of weeks and it's all about world building, which is very much my thing. Yeah, we've got loads of stuff going on in it, but of particular excitement, we have an interview with Abidare, who's the author of The Girl with the Louding Voice, which was nominated for the Desmond Elliott Prize. 
And we also have a chat with comics writer Kieran Gillen talking about world building. And if you've read any of his stuff, you'll know that he's an expert in, in that kind of area. And I was particularly excited to do that interview because I've wanted to get Kieran on the show for ages and talk about his various work in his own books as well as working for Marvel and Star Wars and that kind of stuff. So the the whole pack is going to be full of practical advice and really interesting insight from these really fantastic writers. And Steph, today on the show, tell us more about Attica Lock. Yes. So if you've listened to the podcast before, we are sure you are aware that we had our annual Noirage Crime Writing Festival earlier this month in September. Uh, But this year was a first because it was our first digital version of the festival. It was a fantastic lineup. We had a brilliant time. If you didn't catch all of the programme, you can go online at noirage.co.uk and catch all of the author events on YouTube there. Attica is an award-winning US author and screenwriter. So she's known very well for the Highway 59 novels, um, which are really highly acclaimed and really well thought of. She's also known as a screenwriter for things uh, like When They See Us, which was recently out on Netflix, and Little Fires Everywhere, which is on Amazon Prime. We commissioned a brand new lecture from her, and she decided to talk about the ways in which crime writing can challenge the distribution of power and authority at a structural and individual level. So drawing on examples from her own career and her writing and her time spent growing up in Texas, um, she she was sort of lifting the lid and talking about issues of race and power, property and prejudice in, uh, in America today. Yeah, and the live event that went up a couple of weeks ago when the Noirge Festival was on was so exciting. It's one of those events where even though it was online and digital, you could feel the excitement in the virtual room from the audience as they were listening and commenting. And it was a really engaging lecture followed by this great Q&A. But we do realise that not everyone likes to watch long-form videos on YouTube, and some of you won't have been able to attend the live thing. But we didn't want anyone to miss out on this lecture because it was so good. So here we have a special version of it for the podcast so that we can make sure that everyone gets a chance to listen to Attica's wise words. Oh my word, I am, I have to start with my absolute, total and complete um, gratitude for being asked to share my thoughts about anything. I'm, I'm, I'm super flattered. And this is, I will admit, quite odd for me in a lot of ways. Um, I, I don't normally, I'm not accustomed to sharing my thoughts outside of the pages of a book. I mean, I certainly mouth off on Twitter and I do so in interviews, but this whole experience is really asking something different of me and it's asking me to after five books deeply kind of contemplate what i've set out to do in a way that has been unconscious in some ways i think this has been a gift for me for somebody to ask me to consider the scope of my work and its meaning and purpose um and forgive me for my eyeline getting down i've got lots lots of notes but i want to say this so what i've been asked to speak about is ostensibly to talk about crime writing and decolonization, which to my American ears, not that we don't have a history of colonizing, we certainly learn from the best of them. What I hear in that is a proposed subject matter to investigate crime fiction's ability to look at systems of power, um, to look at um, how crime stories and their characters do the work of kind of proposing change to systems of power or disrupting systems of power from within and without, if only 
by elucidating how these power systems work, kind of pulling back the veil on forms of hidden power. And for this lecture, I would like to focus on one particular area in which power is asserted, power is uh, horse traded, it's shielded, and sometimes where um, how and where power is hidden. And I want to talk about this is going to sound strange, but go with me. I want to talk about real estate. Now, I'm somebody who, when people talk about my books, they bring up setting a lot, that setting is a huge part of the, the, my work and the worlds that I build. And what I want to extrapolate from that is to talk about land as power. Because colonization, obviously, it began with the amassing of land in foreign nations, the theft of land. And in my own country, this, this country's history began with decades of theft of land from Native Americans for whom there was no even concept of the land being anything but God-given until people started to attack and were willing to kill them for it. So wars have been fought throughout the world over land. And in my contemporary novels, of course, what often happens is that the tangible um, bloody crimes at the center of the stories are almost always masking larger crimes about land use land ownership and the power that's bestowed by each. So yes, today I would like to talk about real estate. And I wanna start by talking about how land use uh, has been sitting in my psyche for decades without realizing it. So I have said many, many, many times, I come from a long line of black Texans, that my family uh, in Texas goes back generations all the way to slavery. I'm not sure how familiar a UK audience is with the concept of the great migration that happened in the uh, 20th century, mostly in, uh, in America, which was kind of like the largest migration of people within a nation's borders, certainly in American history. And if you wanna know more about this, I can tell you, read this book, The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. Um, that, is, that is an illuminating book about this American phenomenon. She also has a new book out called Cast that I pre-ordered because I hear it, it is, it's gonna be incredible and is gonna help a lot of people understand the time and place that we're in with Black Lives Matter and how we got here. So the thing about the Great Migration is that throughout the 20th century, certainly after the first and second world wars, Black folks fled the South. They fled in droves. They fled the constant threat of violence, the restrictions of segregation. They left behind for economic, they left behind rather limited economic opportunity. And they left behind this idea that after having served overseas in Europe and having been treated marginally different, the disrespect they got when they came home in uniform, they said, basta, we're out. And they fled north and west. They went to Chicago and New York and Newark, New Jersey, and of course, California. But my family stayed in the South. My family is the flip side of the Great Migration. We never left Texas. And I have, you know, well, let me say, <laughs> I still get a few cousins that might have mouthed off to the wrong white person and then had to get on a train real quick. But other than that, we stayed. And as, you know, how, so how, would, how do we get this land? Um, we stayed because we had land and, and that is that is that that meant economic power and how we got it is thus it was a combination of homesteading and purchasing land in piecemeal so during and after the civil war in america there were uh, several homesteading laws that were passed and the idea of this is that if you could find some land and nobody else was on it and you claimed it and you did something to improve the land. You built a structure on it. You started a farm. You could then claim that land and own it. 
And these laws were passed before the Civil War and after the Civil War, there was some explicit idea that this would help former slaves, that this would be a way for them to be self-sustaining citizens, to have land and all of this. And on my mom's side, my ancestors used this tool. My ancestors through homesteading started a freedmen's community after the Civil War called Nickton. Now, uh, Nickton, I actually dedicate my novel, Heaven My Home, to Nickton. Uh, it is a freedmen's community like Hopetown. And let me slow down, be clear, Nickton is exactly what you think it is. They called it nigger town. That's what the white folks called it. But for us, it was a self-sustaining uh, town that was built that with a church and a school and black businesses and also Native American folks were very much a part of Nickton. And so for us, you could call it whatever you wanted. For us, it was a home for my people. And it was a way that we launched ourselves I'm talking about generations of doctors, lawyers, educators, and politicians. For us, land offered the possibility of economic ascent. Uh, and on my dad's side, as far as we can trace on his mom's side, uh, is land that was given to my great-grandfather in a way that was quietly helped along by some white ancestors who were not publicly claiming they had this black relative in the mix, but they found a way to cleverly uh, at a great discount, find a way for my great grandfather to acquire land. And which my sister, who is our family historian, she's the one who's begun to really begin to figure this stuff out. So my grandfather had this land and he couldn't afford to get a big farm. You had the house and all of the acres there. So he would go around San Jacinto County and get little plots. And so he might be have to drive 10, 15 miles between plots to farm cotton and corn. So this is the history of my family. And things I, I have to be honest, didn't I didn't really deeply think about until I was in my 30s. And I had enough of an understanding of Texas and Texas history and cur the current political climate in Texas that was that that hurt my feelings that, that I just was not proud of. And I kept trying to think, wait a second now, why did we never leave? And I remember I wrote and I wrote about this for Texas Monthly Magazine because they asked me to write an article about how to raise a Texan. And I was talking about my daughter and my history there. And I asked for that article. I asked my great aunt Alta, and I asked my great, my grandmother, Willie Jane, who we call precious. I asked her, why did you guys never leave? And what they both said is, well, daddy had a little farm. And I'm gonna read a little piece from Bluebird Bluebird where I write about having land, that black folks didn't just up and leave that kind of wealth to start over somewhere foreign and cold. No, the Matthewses dug deeper into the soil, planting cotton and corn and the roots of a family that would be theirs alone and not a pecuniary unit convertible to cash at will. They farmed hard and made enough to raise generations of men and women and send dozens of them to college and graduate school. They made a life that could rival what was possible in Chicago or Detroit or Gary, Indiana. They were not willing to cede an entire state to the hatred of a bunch of nut scratching, tobacco spitting crackers. Money allowed for that choice, sure it did, but money also demanded something of them and the Matthewses were willing to give it. They built a colored school in Camilla, offered small business loans to colored folks when they could, and they dedicated their lives to public service, becoming teachers and country doctors and lawyers and agitators when the times called for it. What they were not going to be was run off. This passage is essentially my family's history. Uh, on both my mom's side and my dad's side, Everybody comes from rural towns along Highway 59 in East Texas. And this, what I've just read, is the reason why we never left. 
And because of the ingenuity and hard work of my ancestors, I came into the world, if I'm being fair, with relative privilege. I come from landowning, educated people going back to reconstruction. And the privilege is of being born a certain station in life, being a landowning black person, a black Texan. I've also understood what our land and the fact of it has meant to white racists around us. People have been trying to steal my family's land since we got it. Helped along by the fact that the irony of desegregation and the irony of um, more economic, economic opportunity for black folks in the cities in Dallas and Houston and all these other places is that folks left. Folks had this land deep in the country, but they wanted a good job at a high rise in Houston or Dallas. And that land that belonged to our grandparents and great grandparents just sat there, which allowed for local white folks to come in and steal it. Um, basically, when it was left sitting empty, when you couldn't keep an eye on it, basically you have people out that I'm, this is my family story. There are white folks out there who have forged documents, have forged signatures, who have moved property lines in their favor while we're trying to make a living in, in, in Houston. They've been doing this shit and all local officials frequently will turn a blind eye. And I've grown up with these stories. I've watched my mom go toe to toe with these men in rural courthouses where they're saying, we can't help you, honey, because we have your, we have your grandmother's signature. Or my, you know, my grandmother, my mom's signature saying that she signed away a piece of land. My grandmother had a master's degree. She was a teacher. But how do we prove to these local officials that she could read that she never would have signed something with an X? There was one family whose land abuts my, my mom's side of the family, their land, they actually tried to, with moving the documents around, buy up a piece of land that made us have to trespass to get to our land. And all of this is happening in Texas with, with is gun racks everywhere and Confederate flags and pickup trucks. And it's just, I say all this to say that somewhere in my mind, I was absorbing all of this from a child through college, through early adulthood. And that the, the idea of what land ownership means and, and what the fight over it means has been lying dormant in my psyche for years before I ever thought to write a book. And so when I think about that first book, well, I have to admit, you guys, I didn't know what I was doing. I was a newbie, I had no clue. And I also did not have an appreciation for the way in which the psyche and the unconscious mind really plays a part in writing books, that it's, it's, it's working in tandem with your conscious mind. So I thought I was going to write a slick little thriller. I wasn't thinking it was going to have anything political in it. What I had was a premise. And that premise was what opens the book. There is this incident that happens on a boat um, in Houston, Texas, 1981, on Buffalo Bayou. Uh, Jay Porter, our, our protagonist, goes out on a boat with his wife when they get into a dark uh, backside of a bad neighborhood, they hear a woman screaming for help and then they hear gunshots. This is actually based on an incident that happened to our family. I was on a boat with my dad and my stepmom and many other people and we had this incident happen and our reaction to it was, uh -uh, uh -uh, call the police, I don't know what the hell is going on. And we did, but I thought, oh, I could take that premise and I could insert a, a small time criminal defense attorney who doesn't have a lot of money, who used to be an activist, who has all these scars from being an activist. And I could just write a slick thriller. But the book I ended up writing was better than the one I intended to write because I allowed my unconscious mind to lead me to something else. Because on its face, that crime that opens the story, this murder, it seems isolated 
But over the course of that book, when you start to learn the other storyline in the book, there's a longshoreman strike. There's a threat that these oil and gas workers will walk out in solidarity, which means oil for all of the nation, because most of it came out of Texas, would be shut down. And we'd be back in the 70s with the long lines and all this kind of stuff. When, when Jay starts to realize that that thing is connected to the action in the opening pages, he starts to put something together. He's caught between these two stories and the way that he figures out the biggest crime in the book, which is not the murder that opens the pages, is because of a fraudulent real estate deal. Let me back up for a second and say something else about what I was saying about land and Houston. So Houston in 1981 was the darling of the darling economy of the globe. It, it was untouchable. It was in the middle of an oil boom. People were moving there from all over. This is when you get the movie Urban Cowboy and you get Model Jerry Hall and you get this, this um, Texas kind of culture because it was just making money hand over fist and it was growing too fast. It was growing so fast that it could not actually keep up with its growth and serve all of its citizens. In fact, I make a point that in the book, Jay lives in a predominantly black neighborhood, which has sporadic trash pickup trash to the point where there's an actual scene where he goes to take his trash out and all kind of dumps down at his feet because in a poor neighborhood, the, the city can't keep up. They don't have enough um, employees to pick up all the trash, but in rich neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, they hire their own uh, private contractors to pick up their trash. So you're getting a picture of, of Houston as a place that that puts growth and industry over how to serve, uh, how to best serve their citizens, how to improve their lives. And so that was always just a backdrop of the thing that I wanted to say. And even the fact that that initial crime on page three or whatever happens in a neighborhood called Fifth Ward, which is a black neighborhood, which is does not have a lot of resources, where somebody would not pay a ton of attention if a, a, a couple of gunshots went out in a single night. Somebody chose that to carry out a crime. And I wanted that to be a part of, of the story as well. The ways in which political and societal neglect frequently lead to criminality, uh, the way that that kind of plays a part. But getting back to this fraudulent land deal, and I'm sorry, you guys, there's going to be some plot spoilers, but it's been out 11 years. I can't help you. I can't help you. It's been out. When, so what happens is the woman that Jay saves, the one who was screaming, gunshots, when she gets saved, and, and, and Jay ultimately finds out she works for a fake real estate company, a real estate company that has no office. All they're doing is trying to very quickly buy up homes in a very particular neighborhood near a salt mine fast. And... This is what ends up leading to the biggest crime of the book is that when Jay follows that trail and realizes that why somebody's trying to scoop up all these homes really fast is because there's there's oil coming up in their backyards. There's that that is revealing the bigger crime of the book, which is that an oil company has been illegally storing oil and hoarding it in a salt mine, which is a thing that that is done in America. There, there, there's the strategic petroleum reserve. The, the nation does it. But I was posing that this actual company, a corporation is doing it so they can manipulate oil prices. Um, all of that is discovered because one guy wouldn't sell his house. Like one guy says, this old guy, Ermin Ainsley says, and I guess nobody would have figured any of this out if I had sold, if I had sold my house because he was a stubborn old man. And it allows Jay to ultimately take him on as a client. And you know that he go, you go out of the book knowing that he's going to sue coal oil and is going to bring down the bigger crime that not that the loss of life at the beginning of the book is not important, but, but I, 
I frequently come back to the idea of street crimes masking bigger crimes. Um, so when I think about my second book, The Cutting Season, which when I had second book syndrome and I was a new mom and I was terrified, um, but I will say that I don't think I've written anything that is more nakedly about land ownership and land use and the power they convey. I mean, the whole story starts because a body, a dead body is put on, a, is left on the wrong side of a property line. So that already sets it off. She's a migrant worker and she works for a big agricultural firm that is um, that works the sugarcane fields that surround this plantation, uh, which in it's called the Bellevue Plantation. And in, and in 2009, it's a historical tourism site. So, and I have to say this, they, so they host weddings, they do tours for schools, they put on plays about antebellum life, and they have a gift shop. And I actually based this place on a real uh, plantation called Oak Alley Plantation. And I invite anybody at any time to please Google an image of it. It is something to see. I went to a wedding there in 2004 and it was one of the oddest experiences of my life. I had never been on a plantation before. Uh, and I, in order to get there, we had to drive through, cause it was, it was about an hour outside of New Orleans. We had to drive through rural black poverty in order to get to this plantation where these majestic columns just shot up along the Mississippi. And it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen, which infuriated me because if you could draw a direct line from that plantation to all of the poverty we had just driven through, it was disturbing. And when we got there, when I finally got stepped out of the car on the land, I burst into tears. I, I just, I didn't understand why am I here in a, in a fan $300 dress and heels on a plantation? What is this? And why, in order to get to the main house where the wedding is, do I have to walk past a plaque which had the names of every slave and what they cost that had ever been on this plantation? The only thing that gave me peace was a sense of feeling like, okay, the bride and groom were actually an interracial couple. I'm in an interracial couple. My husband is white. The wedding was actually on our wedding anniversary of all things. So I'm thinking, okay, okay, I know what we're doing here. We are going to gather on this land that has represented racial violence and pain, and we are with love going to remake it, rethink it. I kept waiting all night for somebody to make a toast. Somebody say something about where we are. Nobody did, not even the, the black relatives. And the bride's father was a minister. I literally never known a black minister who couldn't find a microphone and say something at a wedding ever. He didn't say anything. So it became clear that the couple had simply picked this place, not for any sense of its history, but simply because it was um, stunning. And that, 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 is, that is part of, of, of its, that's part of its, its cunning. And that's part of how you obfuscate history is that you cling to the beauty of it and you simply wipe out. And this novel is about the people who own the plantation, who own that land, get to tell history or not tell. I wanna read, again, Google this, uh, see the pictures, but I do wanna read a, a little passage that kind of paints this thing about the, the tangle with the beauty and everything else, because I have to say that to write this novel, I had to, I couldn't hate the plantation I was writing about. I actually had to believe it was beautiful. I had to also be seduced by it. So I'm gonna read this passage from the opening of the book. It was during the Thompson Delacroix wedding, Karen's first week on the job that a cottonmouth, measuring the length of a Cadillac fell some 20 feet from a live oak on the front lawn, landing like a coil of rope in the lap of the bride's future mother-in-law. 
It only briefly stopped the ceremony, this being Louisiana after all. Within minutes, an off-duty sheriff's deputy on the groom's side found a 12-gauge in the groundskeeper's shed and shot the thing dead. And after one of the cater waiters was kind enough to hose down the grass, the bride and groom moved on to their vows, staying on schedule for a planned kiss at sunset, the mighty Mississippi blowing a breeze through the line of stately hundred-year-old trees. The uninvited guest certainly made for lively dinner conversation at the reception in the main hall. Uh, and by the time the servers were making their rounds with imported champagne, several men were lining up to have their pictures taken with the viper before someone from parish services finally came to take it away. Still, Karen took it as a sign, a reminder really that Belle V, its beauty was not to be trusted, that beneath its loamy topsoil, the manicured gardens, the two centuries of breathtaking wealth and spectacle lay a land both black and bitter, soft to the touch, but pressing in its power. She should have known that one day it would spit out what it no longer had use for, the secrets it would no longer keep. So, as I said, this book is about who owns, who he who owns the land that history sits on gets to decide how that history is told or if it gets told at all. Karen is the descendant of slaves that, that worked on this plantation and now she's the general property manager. And of course, she's initially, initially caught up in this mystery, the crime of what happened to this migrant worker who works for this agricultural firm. But through trying to figure that out, she finds out, oh, wait a minute, that agricultural firm that's working these sugarcane fields, they want to buy the plantation, raise it, thereby more, even further erasing history and plant more sugarcane. I, for me, it's almost like it's a, and then of course, over the course of the book, Karen also realizes that she, her ancestors actually owned the land. I actually used the same thing that, without even realizing it, the same laws that my ancestors were able to use to say that her ancestors owned that land. So it's almost a Russian doll of obfuscating and obliterating history. You have a corporation that wants to raise a plantation, a plantation that's been selling a fake version of history that actually belongs to the descendant of a slave. It's wild when you think about it. And the crimes in that book are many. And the death of that migrant worker is just the start. It's just the start of those crimes. And I do want to offer that there's been a lot of debate when I've spoken with people about this book, about the ending, people who don't like it. <laughs> there are plenty of people feel like the fact that Karen, when she finally confronts Raymond Clancy, whose family's owned this for generations, who stole it from her family, his ancestors, when she finally confronts him about it, she does not say that she's going to make a play for the land. And people have said that they didn't understand that at all. She says, hey, when Groveland buys this, I'm out. When everybody else has to leave, I'm going to. She says to Raymond Clancy, I don't want it. I don't want it any more than you do. And what she was saying is, I don't want the history either. We both got stuck with some shit we didn't ask for. And of course, I wrote those lines after Obama was elected. And I have to say that I, all of my books, I always have a dateline at the beginning. They are always meant to be fixed at a certain place in time. And so this book was very much inherently colored by that time. It takes place in 2009. I was writing it after he was elected. It, it is so much about my optimism that my country might be heading in a new direction. And it makes me think about some of the final lines in the book where after the plantation has been sold, 
all of the workers and the people who've been reenacting slave parts and have been working at these weddings, they know it. this is it. They have a final kind of party down at the slave quarters and they know they're probably not gonna see each other ever again. And I'm gonna read the small passage. Lorraine was drinking beer from a can. She stood and said it was time to head back, to pick up where the catering crew had left off, bussing dishes, breaking down tables, cleaning the kitchen and any left behinds in the dining hall. But as Lorraine started to her feet, Karen asked her to please sit down. Leave it, Lorraine, she said. Her tongue light with champagne, her mood brighter than it had been in weeks, years even. Leave it just as it is. Those words were me as the author expressing a hope that we could leave the tangled and ugly, violent and messy past of slavery to walk into something new in the Obama era. And it hurts me every time I have to admit how wrong I was. But that's not what happened. Uh, but that, that was written out of my optimism. You mentioned my third book, Pleasantville, um, which is about real estate and voting rights. It's about real estate and voting rights and how they came together in one Houston neighborhood and actually changed Texas history. Um, Pleasantville is a real place in Houston. I, did, I grew up there, didn't know about it. I only learned about it because my father ran for mayor. My father ran for mayor of Houston in 2009. And I could not understand why there were so many campaign events in this little neighborhood, which basically had seen better days as far as I was concerned. It was it was kind of it, it was not that great looking and it was mostly middle class, working class black folks. I just didn't get it. Why was every candidate for mayor and congressperson and governor? Why were they all doing rallies there? I didn't understand. And then I asked somebody the history and knew I was about to write a book because the history of Pleasantville is fascinating. Um, there were these two Jewish developers in 1949 who just came up with this idea that if we had a Levittown over here and we had a Shaker Heights, Ohio over here, why couldn't we have a planned community for uh, Black folks with money? This was a dream that they had, that they created. And so all of a sudden you had thousands of Black folks who had money. I mean, insur insurance was a big game for Black folks segregation, but, you know, they were bankers and lawyers and everything, and they had money, and they were buying these beautiful homes, and they were educated, and they were engaged. If you put them all in one place, you know what happens? You create a new voting precinct that is concentrated Black voting power. I don't know that those two developers were thinking about this, but that's what happened, and I actually opened that book with the epigraph that from the Houston Chronicle, it's a true quote, that every politician worth his salt knows the road to elected office uh, passes through Pleasantville. You can't quite get elected in Houston without capturing that voting precinct. It's known for its political power and it's always being courted. And, and, and the Pleasantville in that book, which takes place in 1996, was at a crossroads, was against the ropes, so to speak, which is another thing about land ownership and um, use. So it was built to sit among prairie land. It was just beautiful before. And, but, but Jay, when, he's, when he drives up to, into Pleasantville in the early pages of the book, there's a short quote. There's a way that he describes a, a tiny little patch of woods that is, I, I'm telling you, to find any patch of land in Houston that doesn't have some piece of industry on it is a shock. If Houston thought it could get six jobs out of this square eight centimeter of land, they would build something on it. Like it's just, that's the culture of the city, which raised me, <laughs> I have to say. Anyway, Jay's, the, the, the narrator is saying about this patch of land, it's a rare block of undeveloped land in a city that wears its disdain for proper zoning as a badge. Its belief in industrial growth as democracy's birthright penciled in just behind the pursuit of happiness. 
Pleasantville in particular had become surrounded by industry over the last 20 years, ever since the 610 freeway was built against the residents' strident opposition. This is true of Pleasantville itself, that over the years, all of that prairie, you know, I keep gesturing down here, nobody can see it. Over, over the years, all around Pleasantville, there were chemical plants and, and, and all kinds of things that got built around it on that prairie land. And some of it was with the residents' opposition. Uh, once they lost the fight to have a freeway cut their neighborhood in half, they lost a lot of battles about this kind of stuff. But I have to also admit, they fell uh, victim to the siren seduction of industry like anybody else. That, that, that is the culture of the city in which I was raised, which is industry first, people second. And so they got surrounded by uh, chemical plants. And in 1995, the year before this book takes place, there was a humongous chemical explosion at a plant that burned down a good part of the neighborhood. And it start, that was the begin of, beginning of the decline of Pleasantville. People started to leave. It was just terrible. And in my book, in the fiction, I have Jay Porter as their um, lawyer that he's trying to put together a class action lawsuit uh, against this company. And, and that is the reason why he gets drawn into a mayor's race that's going on because there is a Pleasantville native running for mayor. And two things open the book. There's a girl who goes missing on the night of the election. She actually works for the other uh, candidate, not the person from Pleasantville. And Jay Porter's office gets broken into same night. And these two are ultimately connected because what that book is really about, even though it seems like it's, uh, it's about this missing girl, it's actually, when Jay digs into it, it's actually about a plot to completely reimagine how people campaign in America, how elections are won. So in America, it's all done by maps. You know, I, you know it's, it's done by, you look at precinct maps and you decide in, the, in American parlance, they're red or they're blue they're Republican or they're Democrat. And the way that, that elections have been run is you are running for whatever and you look at a map and you, you write off this neighborhood because they're Republican and I'm a Democrat. I'm not gonna bother uh, campaigning there. Or you look and say, I'm Republican and this neighborhood is blue. I'm not gonna bother uh, campaigning there. However, what Jay discovers is that somebody is trying to use the mayor's race in Houston as a test case for breaking this system up. For instead of writing off neighborhoods, you go in surgically into a neighborhood with armed with information about every single resident, every single house, and you pull out the votes that you can um, use for yourself. And it destabilizes a voting block. I could not have written this book had I not read Victory Lab by, by Sasha Eisenberg. I learned about this from reading that book and the fact that this was something that was in play ahead of uh, George W. Bush's um, election in 2000. And what Jay figures out in that book is that that's what somebody is trying to do. They're actually trying to do a test case for how they'll run this shit in 2000. And in fact, Charlie Luckman, one of the characters says the way, about 1996, he says, the way elections are run, it's all changing. It's not precinct by precinct anymore, not for the ones who want to win. Because four years from now, it's all going to come down to a handful of votes which is exactly what happened in 2000. So Pleasantville looks at real estate through the eyes of political power and also how in particular black voting power can be manipulated and diluted. And that is the real crime of the novel. And it's something that, my, that interests me obviously because my country's still dealing with it. We're still dealing with efforts to erode black um, 
voting rights by redrawing district lines, by on campaign maps, putting fewer polling places in black neighborhoods. This is a story where real estate becomes a political destiny, that if I live in a certain place, I can be targeted and my voting power be diluted. My fourth book. My fourth book, Bluebird Blue, it kind of brings me back to where I started because it's so deeply rooted in my in my Texas history and my Texas roots and where where my interest in land as a vehicle for telling stories about criminality kind of got started. Um, in that book, there are these two back to back uh, murders that take place in a tiny little town of Lark, a town that was actually itself once a plantation. Uh, it was owned by the ancestors of a character named Wallace Jefferson. Um, and a parcel of that land had once been given to uh, Geneva Sweet, a black woman who opened a cafe along Highway 59 that was initially set up so that black travelers on Highway 59 in East Texas, who had nowhere else they could stop or eat during segregation, they could stop there. And, and the significance of Highway 59 in East Texas, if you look at a map, it goes from Laredo, which is on the Mexican border, all the way along the east side of the state up to Texarkana, the Arkansas border. So for black folks in the East, and it go beyond that, it goes like up to Minnesota, Missouri, it goes. So if you were a black person trying to get the hell out of Dodge, if you were of the people of the great migration trying to get out, you would go on Highway 59. That's the way you would go. And so I'm gonna read a tiny passage that kind of sets up the importance of Geneva's place. It, it had been born of an idea that colored folks who couldn't stop anywhere else in the country, well, they could stop here. They could get a good meal, a little bite off a bottle of whiskey if they knew how to be quiet about it. That you could get your hair cleaned and, and, and up before you made it to family up north or to the job you hoped would still be there by the time you got on the other side of Arkansas because there was no point in going if you weren't gonna get way the hell past Arkansas. 40 some odd years after, after the death of Jim Crow and not much had changed. Geneva's was as preserved in time as the yellowing calendars on the cafe's walls. She was a constant along a highway that was forever carrying people past her. And that was probably probably me trying to talk about the, the stasis of my family staying in one place as many other Black Texans left and went up the highway. And in fact, Geneva's, it only exists because of the moral crime of segregation. Um, and her cafe is based on one that my great-grandmother had in Corrigan, Texas. It was also on 59. It was also a place where black folks knew how to stop because, you know, I, to, the, to, the, to the degree that, that a UK audience is familiar with um, the difficulty of traveling and traversing when you can't stop to pee or eat or sleep. Uh, that's, that's the reason for the Green Book. And of course, there was a movie, The Green Book. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I, you know, we'll leave that. We'll just leave that. But the point is, there was an actual green book that let people know where they could stop, and it would. And and my grand, my great grandmother's cafe was one of, one of these places where people could go. They knew they would be respected and they would be safe. Um, in Lark, so I said Geneva's exists because of the moral crimes of segregation. Lark exists because of the moral crime of slavery because it was a plantation, and then the roots of that history are run so deep that the town is still on its surface quite segregated, but it's actually entangled emotionally and genetically. That never gets really deeply exposed. And when you get in deep into the case, what you find out is of these two murders, that the motive for the first one is connected to, the motive of the first one, which led to the second murder, the motive is land. 
it has to do with the fact that Wally Jefferson wants the land that Geneva's Cafe sits on, the land that used to be a part of his family, their portfolio, so to speak. And his father gave a piece to Geneva because at one point Geneva and Wally's dad were romantically entangled. What Wally wants is to get back what he believes is his. He wants his birthright. But the land, in my opinion, is an avatar for Geneva herself. What he wants is to possess her because he has arguably romantic feelings for her. So the land becomes this the reclaiming and repossessing the land as a way to claim and possess Geneva, which is also a fantasy way of going back in time where I could just own folks. I owned everything here and I owned all of the land. And, and, and before I leave the, the, the talk about Bluebird, Bluebird, I, I have to say that there's, there's another story in here about land that, about land getting mixed up and mistaken for love. I get asked a lot about um, the character Belle, who is Darren Matthews' mother, whom I adore. I think she, she's just fun to write. She's crazy and she's fun to write, but I have compassion for her. And what I wanna say about that is that when I started this whole lecture talking about the relative privilege of being black landowning folks, there's the other side of it, which is black folks who stayed because they did not have money. So my, it's, I say it in the book in Bluebird, Bluebird, that the Matthewses stayed because they had money, but Darren's mother's people stayed because they didn't have the economic resources to flee. They didn't have money for a bus ticket. They didn't have money to get set up in a new city. And so for Belle, her psyche is set up by the, set up by the fact that she believed that if Darren's father hadn't died, that he, if he had married her before he died, that she would have had access to that family's farm and the middle-class respectability that goes with it. And she wouldn't be renting a trailer on the back of somebody else's property. And that resentment, that, that resentment and the way that gets mixed up with love and what you owe me, my son, is why she torments the fuck out of him for two books. <laughs> And it's all about, if I could have been on that land, I would have been seen as a respectable woman. I would have had something. Uh, and so I just, I just say that to say that I frequently talk about crime fiction as being, in addition to everything I'm saying here, it being about the illusion of scarcity, that it, it, that it, it, it has the ability to lay bare the sickness in the idea that there's not enough. The, the, that there's not enough land, there's not enough love, there's not enough food, there's not enough money. I, I, I want and you got, so I'm gonna do something violent to take it. And it, believing in scarcity makes you sick. It makes you do crazy things. Like I gotta take this and I gotta take that. And if I gotta knife somebody, do it, I will. But the truth is there is enough. It, it's a sickness to be, it is a sickness to live in my country right now and say, we can't save the postal service or we can't pay people while they can't work. It's, it, it, while, while all of the, it, it's crazy. While there's so much being spent on military and so much, it's, there is enough if everybody shifts their priorities. But when we live in a world in which scarcity is, is portrayed as bare fact, that there simply isn't. And in my country, 100%, we don't have, uh, Socialized medicine. We don't have, you know, a national health care. There's just always this system that you are struggling constantly. Even our Trump is trying to attack our social security right now. Like, so when you live in a world where it's there's not enough, then if you see a Mexican walk over the border, you're like, no, nah, your ass can't come in because I don't even have enough. Get the fuck out. That's where all of this kind of sickness and violent thinking, in my opinion, comes from. 
So I'll move on to talk a little bit about Heaven My Home, and I'm not gonna do any spoilers here because it's new. I'm gonna try not to do any spoilers, but this book also so nakedly turns on land ownership. And it brings us back to what I said earlier about how my country was formed, which is by stealing land. The original crime of America is stealing land from Native Americans. Um, and, and the book takes place around this area, Caddo Lake in East Texas, which is, please, another one I want you to Google. It's, you have to see it to kind of understand it. It's huge. And it actually is so big that it crosses state lines. Um, it's just magnificent and crazy. And so the book takes place around Caddo Lake in a real town, the real town of Jefferson, which is another place that um, a lot of its industry is built around replaying the past and rewriting the past. Uh, and also the fictitious town of Hopetown, which I, you know, was modeled on Nickton and of course dedicated Heaven My Home to Nickton. Um, so it's a freedman's community out there that's on its last legs. Um, it's down to one black man and a few uh, Caddo Indians. And here's the thing you really have to understand that, that Texas was named by Caddo Indians. The Caddo word for friend ally is Tejas, which became Tejas, which became Texas. If there is anybody who can lay claim to Texas, it is them. It is them and the other Native American tribes that were here long before anybody else was. Um, but of course, Texas's history is rife with wars and battles and whose land is whose, Mexico was in it, Spain was in it, France tried to get in it, and then ultimately white Americans and European descendants laid, tried to lay claim to it too. But the, in my opinion, the state's soul belongs to Native Americans. Um, I do wanna read from a particular passage about the, about the land and the lake itself that speaks to the breadth of its history. Because when you go deep into Cattle Lake, you go to a place beyond time. It, you can't even hear anything in there because there's all this Spanish moss on the trees that actually sucks up the sound. So it's like you are riding through prehistoric times. So this is, this is Darren Matthews and people riding through a um, cypress tree forest. It was raw beauty floating through a forest of trees older than time itself. Trees that seemed to stand sentinel against outsiders, against any man or woman who didn't respect the lake's history, who didn't respect or understand what had been here before any of them on that boat had been born, before America was even an idea, before Mexico and Spain had a piece of it, before the French tried it too, and before Texas was more than a word of kindness on a caddo's lips, Tejas. Um, in that novel, I love it so much. Sorry, I'm having a moment. I'm just so, I just remember how hard it was to write it and, and what it was to research it and go out on Cattle Lake with my dad who did it because I was scared to be out there by myself. <laughs> In the novel, there is this, the story of a boy who goes missing is actually masking a bigger fight over land, the land on which Hopetown sits. And part of the problem starts with the fact that this little kid who's named Levi King is the son of white supremacists who are squatting on Hopetown. So you've got Hopetown, which like I said about other Freedmen's community and other black land that with, with other economic opportunity, what had started as these co concentrated places of black culture and black uh, wealth and 
our own city halls and all this kind of stuff. When you had access somewhere else or economic opportunity somewhere else, people left. And then there are a lot of these Freedmen's Towns still left in, in Texas. And they all have like about three people in them. May, I mean, the, the biggest one I've heard is maybe 12. And so in Hopetown, there's one guy left and a family of, of, of native Texans, the Caddos, that, that are there too. And all of a sudden these white supremacists come and start squatting on this land, which of course is a metaphor. <laughs> That's a metaphor for white folks coming in, in the first place and squatting on people's land. It's, it's, it's crazy. And so there's so many literal and, and moral crimes that are roiling beneath the story before it even fucking begins. Um, this kid goes missing and, and Darren is sent there to putatively investigate this potential crime. Like, is this little kid missing uh, or has some kind of harm befallen him? Uh, but he's also been instructed to use the case of this missing boy to dig up dirt on the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas. Um, I won't say too much because then I want to talk about, I, I, I really want to protect spoilers, but know that a, this what is the fate of this child hangs on a land deal. I'll just say that and, and, and leave it at that. And, and, and I will say just personally about that book and about that story. Um, and this is not about land. This is me telling my feelings about how much that story is about me trying to know whether or not I could forgive the people who voted for Donald Trump. The book is very much about forgiveness. It's a theme that runs through every element of the book because I'm quite aware that, that, that Trump will one day be gone. He'll either drop dead or be voted out or one or the other gotta happen. And then how do we all still live together? Like I, like I still have to live, I still have to stand in line at the grocery store behind maybe people who put someone in office who disregarded the, the, the value of my life and the lives of millions of people like me because of the economy. Hmm? what and i have such rage for the ways in which they have untangled and and threatened the nation to act out whatever kind of resentment they were feeling about this very thing that i talk about the illusion of scarcity that if i have to share this nation with new people coming in then i'll just burn the shit to the ground which is kind of what it feels like happened that if you were being asked to acknowledge you didn't do all this shit by yourself it was black folks that built stuff. It was Irish people who came in. It was Chinese people who came in, who built railroads, who built everything. You didn't, it was no great, great white man of history that did this. If you have to acknowledge that and, and also to acknowledge that this country doesn't belong to anybody, truly, but the Native Americans who also didn't think it belonged to them, that it was, it was just, it didn't belong to anybody. There was no sense of ownership. Unless you want to kill me about it, then I guess I'm going to have to come back and, and work this out. But I say all this to say that I feel like we're in the place that we're in because people did not want to share this land, that people did not want to acknowledge um, the breadth of resources that are here for everybody. There's enough for everybody. And I, 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 guess, I guess what I want to say in, in kind of closing all of this out is the fact that I feel like I'm grateful to everybody here because you guys have kind of given me a gift to take the time to slow down and actually think about more deeply about the things I've written about in a more conscious way, what they mean, uh, why they matter to me, why they, I hope they matter to other people. And it, it, it's very clear that I come honestly by this fascination with the ways in which fights over land are really fights over political power. Um, 
it wasn't probably until deep into my fourth book that I figured that out. Or even maybe then when you asked me to write this lecture that I figured out, oh, a lot of the stuff I come back to real estate over and over and over again. Um, and I always kind of start with this bigger crime that, that's masking something, or rather I start with the small street crime that's masking something bigger. And in my opinion, this is where we go wrong when, in the ways in which we, we discourse and dialogue about street crime. Because what I can't abide by, and I think why you saw everybody take to the streets this summer, is I can't abide by the fact that George Floyd would lose his life over passing a counterfeit bill. This is the pettiest shit ever. This is petty street crime. Or that Eric Garner would lose his life over illegally selling cigarettes. When there are any number of larger moral and literal crimes that set either of these men on a path to petty crime. And I'm talking about the fact that, and not that any of this ever should have cost them their lives, ever. But there are things that were set in motion that put them on a path towards behavior, towards petty crime. And all of that is about property use, it's about land use, it's about, when you look at things like in America, our schools are funded by property taxes. So guess what, if I live in a poor neighborhood, am I getting educated? Mm-mm. Um, the fact that police funding gets a portion by neighborhood. So some people are more likely to be over-policed and, and have more scrutiny. Some people are not. That's about land use and how you think about land. And also in our country, there's this history of redlining. There's this history of banks drawing big circles around black, brown, or poor neighborhoods and saying, we're not going to fund anything. We're not going to fund businesses. We're not going to help with home loans. That then curtails African-American economic ascent. It, it puts a cap on what we're able to do and it suppresses economic growth. We are always so quick to bring down the hammer on street crime, which frankly is 99% of the time people scratching out of survival. They're just trying to fucking live. While larger corporate and political criminals get away with murder. And I mean that both figuratively and literally. And for all of this, my hope is that what I leave you guys with what I think about every time I sit down to write a book is this. Always, always look for the crime behind the crime. Thank you for listening. And thank you, of course, to Attica for putting together such an amazing talk. And Noirage is, of course, a production we do with the University of East Anglia. And supporting the festival are Arts Council England, Norwich City Council, Dead Good Books, TheCrimeVault.com and Norwich Business Improvement District. And we also partner with Norfolk County Council, Gerald's and Visit Norwich. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch with us, you'll find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook and you can join our Discord community by visiting nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and looking at the podcast show notes. And you really should because it's the place to be. It is. It's where all the cool kids hang out. All the best readers and writers in the world. Yeah. If you haven't already, you really should sign up to our wonderful weekly newsletter put together by one Stephanie McKenna. You can sign up to that over on the website, nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. And every week it's full of interesting opportunities and links to our podcasts and videos and other interesting resources. Yes. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again for listening. Keep on writing and we will catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.